we're basically going to give a little bit of a background first on what uh, Joel is talking about, where he comes from, what is what is going on in Joel's time frame. And that's kind of what we're going to start off with. So I'm going to share my screen here. So you see here, we've got the kingdom of Israel, right? So I'm going to just take a look at that for a second. Now, this is, of course, not what it always looked like. Um, uh, we, it splits off later on, which we're going to talk about a little bit. But this kingdom of Israel, how did this come to be? How is it that um, the Israelites are experiencing all the things that they're experiencing, etc.? Um, so we have to get an understanding of that. We have to go back to Israelites and Moses. And really, really quick, I think the hardest part for people when they try to take any kind of parable or uh, pattern that exists in the scriptures, what I find the most common thing people do, especially, especially um, Christians in general, is they don't understand the whole uh, structure of these books. And so they pick pieces of the scriptures and they, they formulate an entire sermon or entire lesson or whatnot on just that one scripture. And it's so important that we understand the context and how God is speaking to his people, who the people are, what has happened to them, what it, their future is. We have the fantastic ability of seeing how events transpire and what are the fruits of those people? What are the fruits of those events? So before we even go into Joel, I want to talk a little about what got Joel to where Joel is um, and, and keep the concept in mind that this concept that the first shall be last and last shall be first. This isn't just a gospel reiteration of the idea that, well, this, the gospel went to the Jews. And so now they're going to go to the Gentiles and then back to the Jews. And then, you know, um, it's not just this is the first shall be last and last shall be first is true in all things pertaining to God, everything. That means that the patterns that we see in scripture um, with God's people are the same. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The scriptures in themselves are for us today. The Lord's not giving us the Bible and this history in the Old Testament as, you know, just for us to look at them and poo-poo these people and say, oh, how silly their religions are and their traditions are and their pride. God's giving us what we need to hear and to learn, to repent and come unto him. So the Jews saw their scriptures, not as a foreshadowing of future events uh, for their own condemnation, but instead they cherry picked the redeeming of a king and the freedom. Um, and they added and took away passages that allowed them to inflate their standard amongst other people, to add more laws, to give the leaders more power and control. And they took away true worship of Christ. So they didn't even take their scriptures what they should, which a lot of us do today. We're constantly warned about religions becoming, um, or the, the foreshadowing of these things, and yet we take them and we're unbelieving and, and we're prideful. So the study of Book and Joel and how he teaches with great brevity is amazing because he goes through concepts that Isaiah takes 66 chapters to explain, but Joel does it in three. And it's not just Isaiah, it's, it's so many of the um, end day prophets, but we find it all throughout the four standard works. DNC 133 actually is a shortened version of the three chapters of Joel. So you could read DNC 133 and you can read Joel's three chapters and you'll get the same concept. So um, 
the whole process of uh, these unfavorable servants and individuals, lives, patterns, and nations, and even all of creation are circumscribed into the idea of the first shall be last and last shall be first. And that all scriptures are also past, but they're also future. All scriptures, everything is past and future. And when we look at that with that lens, there's so much to learn from every word that is in the scriptures. And Joel's ability to do this is quite remarkable. He, he it, it's, it's a gift, I honestly think. So first we're gonna explain some of the, bit, the events that led up to him and that's Moses leads the people out. The people have been saturated with idolatry for hundreds of years, no matter what Moses does or how many miracles God performs, we're not gonna get into all those, but they remain idolatrous. Now remember the constantly told that they are idolatrous by God by Moses, by their actions too, but keep that in mind. They're left without a higher law. Um, and that's Exodus 19.20. And that's because their inability to come to Christ individually. Remember, Moses says, I would to God that all men were prophets. So they're unable to do that. They're proven unteachable and believing, prideful, and even try to kill Moses. And Miriam and Aaron uh, rebel, and they even have to be punished. So really, really dire um straits that these people are in so when people compare themselves to the israelites in a positive light it always makes me go wait a minute <laughs> how well are we studying this here um they the grand promise that the israelites had of entering the promised land doesn't happen moses taking out their mess i know we mo know most of this stuff we're just going to get down into the kings um the priesthood is is the lesser priesthood they don't get all these things that tribes separate um when they or they stay they stay in 12 tribes but um, they have their own issues with one another, but there's 12 separate tribes. And that's where we kind of get the books of judges. So we get this group of judges that are coming and they're leading the people. Some are leading more in one area, some in another. Sometimes they succeed in some of the wars that are happening. Sometimes they don't. Um, but first in Secular Samuel, we hear of the people finally coming forward and saying, hey, we want a king. They're looking at all these other nations around them. Um, they've got all these kings and all these you know, really successful empires and the people want a king. And Samuel's very clear, this is wicked. This is bad. And the Hebrew nations later, like far, far, far later, even today, look at this as the beginning of the downfall of the Hebrew nations, the Hebrew empire, because this is a huge reflection of where they were spiritual, that they wanted to place a man between them and God when God was supposed to be their king. So Samuel warns that it shouldn't happen, but, you know, if you guys really, really, really want a king, fine, we'll give you a king. And so this is where we get Saul. Um, man, I, I've, I'm really disappointed in myself because you look at Saul and you, without studying it yourself, you have this idea of who Saul is. Um, just because, you know, teachings and church and stuff. And so this is, you know, my mistake for not studying the scriptures like I should. <laughs> um, but Saul was not called a god. Um, Saul was uh, called because he was tall and handsome. So any of you that find yourself in those uh, situation, maybe you can be a king one day. But as far as the people were considered, they he was tall and handsome. So, he was king. so this is a little disappointing. Um, he doesn't reign for very long either. Unfortunately, here's a picture of Saul. Um, he is more of a military leader he's not so much king so this first king is kind of a failure if you consider it that uh he only reigns for two years 
he's constantly disobedient to everything Samuel says. And that's where we get David. So David comes into play here shortly uh, by not, you would think that he takes over Saul's uh, kingdom, but he doesn't. Saul kills himself, even when David could kill him. And you see this whole new rise of, oh, this is a righteous king because yeah. he's coming from Are you God. Huh? Are you on your meeting? And he's going to... Um, I'll just copy you when we go over there. Yeah, we got we got a hot mic there. Okay. Anyway, um, so you have uh, David, who seems to be righteous, seems to be following the Lord. Now, where did David find the Lord? The focus, uh, I want to keep a focus on that. Did he um, find the Lord in the wilderness? Did he come to know God on his own? He did. Um, but what happens when he becomes a king? What happens when this kingship takes over? We know what happens with David. We know the sins that he commits. Really, really sad uh, a story there. We go through that anointing of David. We go through his process of trying to be redeemed for the murder and the fornication and the all the things that he's doing that have nothing to do with, with God. Um, and that's where we find ourselves with Solomon. Uh, Solomon, it, I was once again taught a certain thing. Solomon's wise, Solomon's great, Solomon's all these things. But if you really read the scriptures, the people were m- very miserable under Solomon for many, many years. David reigned for 40 years. Um, he was a brilliant military leader, so he was really successful. But he was horrific when it came to be an example and, and leading according to God. And then you've got Solomon, who is looking around at the opulence of all of the uh, empires around him, and he wants that. You see that that really is the true desire of his heart because he is building and he, he the roads and the infrastructure and everything that he does, he's making this an empire. So Solomon comes into play. He makes this incredible empire. Um, but he puts the kingdom into utter uh, debt, such extreme taxation that they're selling off land and they're selling off people and people are becoming miserable. So, um, and then of course he builds grand um really, really, really grand uh, temples and, and etc. This doesn't last for very long. Um, Rehoboam comes into play and we get the split of the kingdoms. Now, this is where Joel comes in. You have these kings that just, that's, that's, the, that's what the people have just experienced. There have been wars and things like that. Joel comes in where there's a northern kingdom and southern kingdom. The 10 tribes go to the north and the two tribes go to the south, right? You've got Judea, Judah, um, and then you got the northern tribes called Israel and Ephraim. Okay, so Joel and most scholars don't really know which kingdom he was in or what time frame he was in, but we can assume because he continually says Israel that he's in the northern kingdom. So Joel is preaching to people uh, about this great destruction that's coming. Now, he the the book of Joel is broken up. When I saw it, I saw it broken up into three different, or, or it's three chapters, but it's broken up into five parts. And it's only 70 verses, a little 70-ish verses, so five parts. Each part opens up with a day of the Lord. And as we're going to go through this, you'll see that, that the day of the Lord before something grand is happening, a big change in one of these parts of Joel. Uh, and this process is going to unfold. So we're going to open up Joel, I'll share my screen. And the majority of my screen from here on out is just going to be going through Joel and we'll just talk through this now once again you can also compare the majority of Joel 
with DNC 133. So if you want to study a little bit this more on your own, um, go through the comparisons. It's really incredible. Um, uh, and, and I also want to just say one other thing. As we go oh, through this, I want you to consider the idea of a trifocal lens. So there's bifocals that you can look at. This is trifocal lens. So trifocals is where you can see three different qualities all in one. So you can see a distance vision, you can see an intermediate vision, and you can see a near vision. Now, the prophet, most prophets use this, but Joel uses it so well. So he uses something to teach people something in the point that they're in, and that the, what they're teaching them now will explain something in the future shortly. But then both of those things witness, so two or three witnesses and all things, of a future event that's going to happen. And that is in the last days or in our day. So keep the idea of the trifocal lens because we're gonna continually connect the idea of not just um, something in Joel's time temporally, but temporally, spiritually, and then in the future of their time temporally, spiritually, and then the, our time temporally, spiritually. So here, I'm gonna share my screen again. And we will uh, open up to Joel in the scriptures. Let's see. All right. So here is our first section of Joel. Um, this is going to be the first part, which is the falling away. Okay, so we've got falling away and destruction here. Joel 1, 2 to 3. Uh, Hear ye this, old men, and give ye all ye inhabitants of the earth. Hath this been in the days of even the days of your fathers? Tell ye your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children and other generations. So what's going on right now is there's a horrific um, swarm of locusts that are destroying everything. They are already in the midst of a, of a terrible destruction. And Joel is using this to actively explain something to the people, to, to foreshadow not only something that's going to come very, very shortly, that's going to be like the locust, but he's using it to um, foreshadow in the end times. Okay, And he's saying, these are, these are very wicked people. What you tend to find in wicked people is they don't see the destructions happening around them or the pestilence or the earthquakes or the wars as a warning from God to repent. Instead, they make excuses for that. And of course, you guys can make correlations to that today in what we're seeing. Um, but, but basically, this is they're in such a bad situation, but Joel himself still has to go, hello, <laughs> you guys, um, this is pretty serious. I'm going to try and draw your attention to this. Uh, so um, we're going to go down to the next verse. And so that which the palma worm, so tell your children, let your children, all their children, um, and their children for another generation, which means that this is going to be talked about for a long time. This is so serious. It's going to keep going and going and going. So verse four, that which the palm, palmer worm hath left hath the locust eaten, and that which the locust hath left hath the canker worm eaten, and that which the canker worm hath left hath the caterpillar eaten. Uh, this specifically is talking about four different types of, of locusts that all do different types of destruction to the people. Now, what's significant about that is you see a foreshadowing or a foreboding of this because in the future, when the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, is overtaken by Babylon, they have four different 
uh, experiences that cause destruction. The first one is the people of Judah not listen to Samuel and Samuel tells them to submit. And then the next three are um, Nebuchadnezzar coming in and sacking Jerusalem. So four distinct types of destructions, a spiritual one and then, of course, physical ones that continue. So this is really significant. Um, and it, it foreshadows of a lot of things that are coming uh, very shortly. And keep in mind that trifocal end. So what does this mean for us today? How is this going to affect us today? Uh, there's no food. This, the locusts, the types of locusts, each one of them eat a different part of the plant. So there's literally nothing left. It's not like they just eat the fruit or they're just eating um, the grain or they're just eating the bark on the tree. Everything's gone. Whatever this worm doesn't eat, that worm eats. Whatever that one doesn't eat, this one eats to where it's complete desolation. And this is reminds me of Christ when he says in um, Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's focusing that not only is this a destruction of a temporal sense, but there's a spiritual destruction happening. There's a spiritual desolation happening among the people, and there's nothing there to feed anyone, right? So the people are famished. And, and this correlation is going to happen in the end times also. Verse five says, drunkards awake, cut off from wine. And this connects to Isaiah 28. So envision a drunkard or alcoholic. All they think about is alcohol. They're impaired and consumed by their addiction. Imagine trying to tell them, oh, well, alcohol is bad for you. Don't drink it. Or trying to stop them. They might become violent if you were to try to take it away, right? So apply that understanding to being called a drunkard in this, situ in, in this situation, especially a spiritual drunkard. So applying this spiritually, these are people who are chosen. They've received the fullness. They're called of God. They're a choice people. Um, they've even had a land given to them after much struggle and suffering and are claiming the only true rights to access the priesthood and God and worship. Yet these people are consuming spiritually that which inflames them to the extent where they're blinded. Alcohol impairs your judgment, impairs your vision. It's physically um, causes you to be unable to do things you could do rationally or physically normally and in, in, without it's um, inhibiting your abilities, right? So they're incapable of seeing or accepting the truth that's right in front of them. They're completely drunk on uh, these precepts, words, ideas, and teachings mingled with doctrine that they've been being fed. So such, to such an extent that they can't see who they are, they can't see what they become. The Book of Mormon calls the state all is well in Zion like drunkards losing their jobs, their home, their friends, but all they care about is the next drink. Everything is good so long as they have their fix, right? That, that's what, what the addic addiction does to you. The Israelites find themselves bereft of spiritual power, revelation, pure revelation with God. They don't care. They are consumed by the world, which they have made their idols, right? So this is an end times book because all of these warnings, uh, the status of the people, the situation, the fallen nature of God, um, it, it is all connected to us today. This, this is all something, and we know that because the Book of Mormon talks about it, that the people were not going to read the Book of Mormon to be warned about us. Why would Nephi put it in there? He's putting it in there because this applies to us. And verse six, for a nation has come up upon the land strong without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. Uh, this has a lot of interesting points in it, not just the fact that it's a profession of another nation, not just 
the group of locusts that are coming. When locusts come in, they come in in such large swarms that there can be miles um, that block out the sun. But there's another nation that he's going to talk about in chapter two that's going to come in. But look at the teeth of the lion. That he has the cheek teeth of the lion. Where do we see those parallels? By saying teeth of the lion, we're paralleling the destruction of the teeth of the locust to a future destruction of an army. But we see of this in the Book of Mormon. Joel's trying to get the reality that is occurring to awaken people to the future reality that's going to happen if they don't repent. And we realize, of course, because we know it's already happened that they don't repent. And in the Book of Mormon, we see the same imagery. Uh, that's in 2 Nephi, or sorry, 3 Nephi 20, 15 through 16, 3 Nephi 21, 12, and Mormon 5, 24. And I will open those up really quick. Let's see. Stop that. And the, the parts that I really like in these are how clear the warnings are with uh, second or third Nephi 20. Um, let's see. I can get them to pull up. Okay, so third Nephi 20, 15 through 16. And I say unto you, he's talking to us here. This is the Book of Mormon, so we're very familiar with that that if the Gentiles do not repent after the blessings which they shall receive, after they have scattered my people, then shall ye who are men of the house of Jacob go forth among them, and ye shall be in the midst of them who shall be many. And ye shall be among them as a lion among the beasts of the forest, and as a lion, a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who if he goeth through, both treadeth down and teareth in pieces, and none can deliver. So that sounds really reminiscent of what Joel's talking about, right? Now let's go to 3 Nephi 21, 12. And, and my people who are eminent of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles, yea, in the midst of them, as a lion among the beasts of the forest, and as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who if you go through, both tread it down, and tear it in pieces, and none can deliver. And then the, the real crowning one for this is when we read it in Mormon, and that's Mormon 524. Therefore, repent ye and humble yourselves before him, lest ye shall come out in justice against you as a lest a remnant of the seed of Jacob shall go forth among you as a lion and tarry in pieces and there is none to deliver. And of course, 22 and uh, leads into that. And then, oh, you Gentiles, can you stand before the power of God except you shall repent and turn from your evil ways? So we see that Joel is talking to a non-repentant people, people who are prideful, who are drunk, who are incapable of seeing their sins and their wickedness and think that they're the most righteous and have the, all the rights available. And yet <laughs> they're not seeing his message and he's using the same imagery that we find in the Book of Mormon that is referencing the Gentiles of the Latter-day Nation. Uh, very, very interesting. So let's go back here to reading in Joel again. I'll share my screen again. Okay. So he hath laid my vine waste and, and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean bare and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. Man, <clears throat> this one was made me so sad when I read this part because um, this is a this is um, the day of the Lord that they're discussing where there's no free fruit on the vine. 
not just the fruits missing, but the vine which produces the fruit is destroyed by all the different levels of locusts that are accessing it. So there's no future prospect of fruit to replace the ones that have been decimated unless something's done. So the current um, planting or the, the current crop is just completely decimated. The vines laid to waste is spoken in many places in Isaiah, but in 2 Nephi 13, 14 through 18, Nephi quotes specifically Isaiah's prophecy, meaning it specifically applies to us today. So he pulls that, that prophecy from Isaiah and puts it in the Book of Mormon because he knows we're going to read it. And, and that's where we see, um, there we go. And it's verse 14 through 18. So the Lord will enter into judgment with the ancients of his people and the princes thereof, for you have eaten up the vineyard and the spoil of the poor in your houses. Huh. What mean ye? Ye beat my people in pieces and grind the faces of the poor, saith the Lord God of hosts. Moreover, the Lord saith, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with stretched forth necks and wanted eyes, walking and mincing as they go and making a tinkling with their feet, therefore, the Lord will smite with the scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will discover their sacred parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the bravery of their tinkling ornaments and the calls and the round tires like the moon. So another connection back to Isaiah explaining and expounding and Nephi taking that and putting it in here. And Joel has already said, okay, this is, this is happening here and amongst my people. And it's going to cause destruction. And this is a future event also. So this is what's going to what's going to be happening here shortly. So we will go back again to Joel. Let me share that. So and what's also interesting, I think, about um, this is the idea of the locust ate the bark of trees causing the tree to die. And, and making it clean and bare and destroyed. They, they pluck it up, nothing's left. We know the Babylonians did that to Judah. And of course the Syrians did it to the Northern Kingdom. And we'll see it in our time because in 1 Nephi 15, 15, Christ, the true vine, the remnant, as we come to know him, ex explains having that vine. And when, if the vine's not there, then we can't have any of the blessings that come from having Christ. 2 Nephi 15 is the song of the vineyard that Isaiah gives that specifically talks about, oh, my vineyard, my vineyard, what more could I have done for my vineyard? He has the same lamenting that you see in Jacob 5, where God is saying, oh, what more could I have done? I have planted it in a good place. I've done all these things. What more could I have done for my people? They're not bringing forth the fruit that they need to be bringing forth. So lots of connections here that Joel makes with all of these other scriptures and people that need to repent and people that need to come back to the Lord, but they're not hearing it. And so a destruction has to come. Uh, just as the fig tree. So another connection to the fruit and to the vine is you have Christ coming out to that fig tree and it looks like it's good. It looks like it's doing what it's supposed to, but when he goes to look for fruit, there's no fruit, right? So what does that mean if there's no fruit? Well, they're not, it's not um, completing the purpose or uh, the purpose for its creation isn't, isn't being manifested. So what's our purpose? Our purpose on this earth it's a time to prepare to meet God. It's a time to come to know him, to have a personal relationship with him, to receive him, to have him abide with us. That fruit isn't being exhibited amongst the people in their time, nor since we have the Book of Mormon and we have Doctrine and Covenants and it's quoting the same things, 
nor in our time. Um, let's see, bear fruit brings eternal life. We see that in, the, in Lehi's dream. So again, the alcohol in verse 11. So be ashamed, ye husbandmen. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I'm still in 15. Um, it's talking about alcohol again. And then Isaiah 520 quotes with references to the leaders in Israel again, talking about a strong drink. And I will pull that up too. So that is 15. Let's read the first Nephi 15, 15 one. And then at that day, will they not rejoice and give praise unto their everlasting God, their rock and their salvation? Yet that day, will they not receive the strength and nourishment from the true vine? Will they not come unto the true fold of Christ? If you notice, whenever it talks about a vine, it's talking about Jesus Christ himself. And only those who are connected to Jesus Christ, which what's connected to a vine? A fruit. So if the vine is dried up, what imagery does that give us? That has happened to a true relationship with Christ. Is it? Is it? Is it a, something that's occurring amongst these people? No, it's not. Uh, let's see. We're gonna do. I. We'll scroll down here. And I think. Well, we'll just move on because Isaiah five twenty specifically quotes the leaders of Israel, saying. Um, What's good will be put for bad. What's bad will be put for good, good for light, for darkness, dark for light. And, and that process of thinking is what gets the people in the situation that they're in. Let me stop this share and I will go back to where we are with Isaiah. So, or with, with Joel. Okay, so we are on verse... Eight. Now, um, before I go to verse eight, you you have this lamenting done in Second Nephi. You have verse twenty-four. We're, we're not going to go through all those, but verse twenty-four, they're casting away. Israel did this; they cast away the laws of God. Um, verse twenty-five, the lions' carcasses on the streets, great destruction. The Book of Mormon and the Gentiles are are reading it, and the pre-Babylonian, pre-Assyrian Israelite kingdoms are reading Joel's words or hearing Joel explain the same things to them. Um, and he's applying that imagery to the foreshadowing of what's going to come. And then verse 28 specifically tells us about the lion that none can deliver. Um, and that's what happens to them. None, no one delivers them from the Babylonians. They're completely decimated. Even their temples destroyed. So the physical and spiritual, I really want to run that home, how important it is to see that we already have witnesses of the destruction that comes when warnings like this are given. Warnings that we're reading of here are so clear and so concise. We've seen exactly what happened to a people shortly after this warning was given. So when we read the Book of Mormon, do we read it like the Jews were at this time when they were looking at Joel going, what, you know, okay, whatever. We'll say we're sorry. You know what I mean? Oh, we'll pray more, read our scriptures more, you know, if they even were going to do that. Do we read the Book of Mormon and realize that these are warnings just the same? Are we acting or are we, are we reacting properly? So verse eight says lament like a virgin in sackcloth. So lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. This is such a, a jam-packed sh short line. There's so much here. Um, lament, uh, 
to express grief over the loss, to be wailed, to mourn, to be sorry, to search in agony over something, usually because of regret, usually because of something that's happened that you feel great pain or remorse for. And so this lamenting that's happening is because of something that has been done. Uh, DNC 4553 says, and then shall they weep because of their iniquities. Then shall they um, lament because they persecuted their king, right? So that lamenting is coming because of iniquities and persecution that they have caused. So this is a lamenting. Now it says virgin here. And, and some people would look at that and go, oh, well, they are good and righteous. Well, we have to keep in mind who, who the foolish virgins were, right? The foolish virgins, they, they had not prepared spiritually. They were only prepared according to the letter of the law. And, and that's not enough. Uh, the husband, so the virgins girdled with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The hus who's the husband? The bridegroom is, is Christ. And the bride is the church. So right here we see the church being bereaved of, of the husband, of Christ, okay? There's a severing here. So um, the husband uh, is gone, and what does she do? She falls to the ground sackcloth because it's her own doing that caused this. The Israelites loved their idols. They loved depending on the world and the flesh over a personal relationship with Christ. They turned from Christ. They constantly turned from Christ. Uh, and this is this is so interesting because you know I was having a conversation with someone or, or with my husband because we had been talking about some things and and my heart goes out to so many people who see parables in the scriptures and they apply those to themselves but they do it without the reality of of all the background connections that made those people work with that parable and maybe I'll talk about that more later but um, so many parables that we connect to ourselves with the Israelites usually tell us we're wicked if we're trying to compare ourselves with them. Just, just keeping that in mind. So verse nine, the meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests, the Lord's ministers mourn. So that's pretty clear, but temporally they're in the midst of this famine. And although it's so great and grand and terrible, they still need someone to point it out. They still need a prophet to come amongst them who at the time they did not accept Joel as a prophet. So we read the scriptures and we think, oh, well, they knew the prophet was there. No, they think he's a crazy guy who's telling them to, to repent, right? So a man comes and he's saying, hey, don't you see all the extreme stuff that's going on in the world? Don't you think this is crazy? Don't you think you should repent? Do you think, uh, we know that they didn't to an extent until more terrible things happened that broke their hearts. So he has to point out the severity of their situation with this pestilence coming and the pestilence leads to what? A famine. So Joel is saying this has never been amongst any generation and it won't be for many generations to come and you're going to be cut off as they are forced. And this, this does happen. So it talks right here about being cut off and they are when they're taken away and they're, the Syrians took them and dispersed them amongst an entire nation that's how you get the lost 10 tribes and they were forced to eat unclean food they were forced to do things that 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 they knew were against the religion and a lot of them willingly because you know but it's interesting if you go back further into this idea of being cut off they're talking here spiritually the procedures for ordinances when they're taking their procedures for ordinances are no longer available the meat offering the drink offering i mean that was their ordinances 
they, the, the priest and the ministers mourn because why? Because they don't have access to it. They don't have the rights to it. It's, it's, there's no power in it. Um, DNC 114 talks about the day of the Lord and the arm of the Lord, similar to Joel's and DNC 45, 39 through 42. I will pull open. I can get this. All right, so 45, 39, and it shall come to pass that he that feareth me shall be looking for the day, the great day of the Lord. So Joel says the day of the Lord more than almost anyone else, except in the doctrine of covenants, doctrine of covenants. It's, it's said so much, but Joel says it five times in three chapters. So looking for the great day of the Lord to come, even for the signs of the coming of the son of man of uh, 42. And before the day shall come, the sun shall be darkened. The moon shall um, be turned to blood. I have to move some away. Um, and the stars shall fall from heaven. So similar, the day of the Lord, we're going to see this. Joel's going to talk about this in the future. Second, but I just want to point out that DNC 45 quotes the same thing that Joel's about to quote. Um, they stray from the ordinances and the prophets and the apostles. If we scroll up here. So as you have asked of me concerning the signs of my coming, the day when I should come in glory in the clouds of heaven to fulfill the promises where I made unto your fathers, you look upon the absence of your spirits from your bodies as bondage that I was shown to you how the day of redemption shall come and also the restoration of the scattered Israel. And now as you behold the temple, which is in Jerusalem, which he called the house of your God, your enemy shall say this house shall never fall. We know, of course, that that desolation came, it fell. Um, but here the Lord's giving, I will show you the restoration of these things. And the, the offering has been cut off. So we see these people that this is, this has fallen. This is a way. Well, Dr. Combs is talking about, why is Dr. Combs talking about a people? He's rehearsing something we already have record of. We already have the record of these people being scattered and these people being cut off. Why are we constantly talking about them? It's, we talk about them more than anything, you know? Um, it's because we're likened unto them here in the last days. So this idea of being cut off and having our ordinances and, and abilities to uh, do these things that to express our religion or express our devotion to God, not bearing the fruits that we believe that they should. Christ was rejected among the Jews after they had the fullness, hence he will be rejected among the Gentiles. So 4553, go down to that. And they shall weep because of their iniquities. Then shall they lament because they persecuted their king, which we read earlier. And this leads them into the, the same process that the destruction of the Jews comes into play. So 45, 1 through 2, hearken ye people of my church to whom the kingdom has been given. So the kingdom was taken from the Jews and then it's given, right? So hearken ye and give ear to him who laid the foundation of the earth that made the heavens and the hosts thereof and who all things were made alive and move and have a being. And again, I say, hearken unto my voice, lest death shall overtake you in the hour when you think not. The summer shall be past and the harvest ended and your soul saved. Dang, that's pretty serious. So he's talking to the church. He's talking directly to the church here. This is um, in 1831. So it's pretty interesting that we see the same imagery and the same 
um, warnings happening. And the Lord specifically says, the kingdom has been given to you now. It's been taken and now it's been given to you. And I need you to be repentant. I need you to hearken. I need you to listen to me um, because this is, this is going to get real, real fast. Hearken ye people of my churches, verse six, ye elders listen together and hear my voice while it is called today and harden not your hearts. So Joel goes to the people and then he also gives a proclamation sort of, it seems like he's talking to everyone. Hosea does the same thing. Hosea goes to the people first and then it's like he goes amongst um, the, the courts or makes a petition to the leaders. And here we've got a petition to the leaders of the church. You've got a, a very direct um, hearkening to the people of my church and the elders listen together and hear my voice while I'm still called today and harden not your hearts. Why are they being warned not to harden their hearts? Let's go to verse 10. Wherefore come ye unto it and with him that cometh, I will reason as with men in days of old and I will show unto you my strong reasoning. And verse 15. So um, this is talking about the everlasting covenant and being a light into the world and the Gentiles will seek it. And so we're going to go down to verse 15. Wherefore, hearken, and I will reason with you, and I'll speak unto you and prophesy, even as unto many days of old. So we're hailing right back to Joel and all of those contemporaries. The those are days of old. Those are ancients and the patriarchs. He's going to try and reason with us, same he reasoned with them. He's going to try and give us the same warnings and the same guidance that was given to them. And, and then these next steps specifically talk about the destruction of the Jews. Let's go down to 28. And when the times of the Gentiles come and a light shall break forth among them that it sit in darkness and it shall be the fullness of my gospel, they receive it not, for they perceive not the light and they turn their hearts from me because of the precepts of men. And this generation shall be the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So this is interesting because I used to read this. Oh, I'll, I'll do the 31 before I go on. And there shall be men standing in that generation that shall not pass until they shall see an overflowing scourge for a desolating sickness shall cover the land. This is really interesting because, I mean, we've had all sorts of sicknesses. But this is a very end times concept of a sickness. And these verses, something's going to happen among the Gentiles, and many won't receive it um, because of the precepts of men. So where else do we hear precepts of men? We hear that in our temple, the, um, the precepts of men mingled with scripture, right? And in the generation shall the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And we can't really go into that. It's a whole other lesson. But this rejection and this idea of rejection and this consistent attitude of, of turning away from truth that's had throughout all the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see very clearly, not just in the Book of Mormon, but in our day. So there's no question that these things are being told to us today. Uh, DNC 58 is, is another connection back to this one verse that Joel's saying about the leaders, which is so important to, um, to focus on. So I'm going to... And that this is DNC 50. Let's see if I can get this to pull up. So DNC, let's see, it's DNC 50 verse 8. There we go. So DNC 50 verse 8, but the hypocrite shall be detected and shall be cut off. We see cutoffs that a lot in Joel. So either in life or in death, even as I will, and woe unto them who are cut off from my church. So he's not talking to, in the, in the chapter before, some people would reason, well, he's talking about Gentiles in general. He's talking about all these people in general. He's not. 
he says right here, talking about more being, and you read the whole chapter. I, we don't have time to go through the whole chapter, but read the whole chapter. It's very clear. He's talking to the church who are cut off from my church for the same as are overcome of the world. What happened to the people in Joel's time? They were overcome by the world. What happened to the kings? I, I, I wanted to go in more detail to kings, but I know we can't. But, but each one of those kings were overcome by the world, right? David was good until he started getting popular and powerful and then he could have whatever he wanted and he was overcome and Solomon was born into the opulence and he wanted even more and he wanted his empire to um, mirror that of the Syrians and the Babylonians and the Chaldeans and so he put his whole country into debt and he did horrible things married you know outside the covenant and all the 700 wives and I mean just unbelievable things happened because they were overcome by the world and these are all people that started off to an extent with a good seed right a righteous root and that connects back to Jacob 5, where you see this, this planting of something good, and then the, the branches overpower it. The branches eat it up and consume it and choke it. Okay, so um, really powerful connection here when Joel is talking to the leaders being cut off, the whole church restored. It's a quite common um, theme that you see all throughout Doctrine and Covenants in the Book of Mormon. Um, and so we're going to go back to Joel here. I can get my computer to respond in a timely manner. Joel, okay. Um, so drink offerings cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests and the ministers mourn. So they're mourning because they don't have the power. There's, there's, they're, they're not bringing forth the fruits. So verse 10, the field is wasted. It's laid, um, the land mourneth. For the corn is wasted, the new wine is dried up, and the oil languisheth. What does that mean? What's happening here? Uh, what, what's happening to the to the people so be ashamed basically is is um oh i think that i'm sorry i'm on verse 10 i was looking at the wrong verse the field is wasted land mourneth the corn is wasted the new wine is dry up and the oil languisheth and the field is wasted joel's sees currently in his time the locusts have destroyed the field temporarily um there's a future nation destruction that's going to come we see the companion this as the field is wide already to harvest this is the opposite. This is what happens when you don't have the fruit, when you're not bringing forth the faith and you're focusing on the world, your heart's um, in Babylon, you have all your idols. What happens? Well, the field um, is wasted. The land mourns. It, um, it's desolate. The oil languishes. The oil references are to, uh, very clearly the oil in the lamps with the five foolish virgins. No one's following the Holy Ghost. Instead, they're following doctrines of men mingled with scripture. What does that do? That causes the oil language. It's language to sit around and not be used and then to become nothing. Um, they're not using the gifts that the Lord has given them because they're relying on these uh, access to the world and men, which if you think about it, we see that happening today. One of the biggest sins that was happening was the Northern Kingdom did not believe that they could, um, that God would fight their battles, right? They were so full of fear and they didn't think God would fight their battles. So they made a, um, an agreement with the Egyptians and they're like, hey, 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 fight, help us um, so we don't die when the Assyrians come, you know. Um, and then the southern kingdom did a little bit better. They lasted almost 200 years after the northern kingdom was destroyed, but they lasted a little bit longer um, by not joining in with this alliance because they, they were told by their prophets, hey, God will fight your battles. You need to trust in God. You do not um, make covenants and trust in the arm of flesh 
and trust in anything that this wicked world is going to give you to get you out to save your life. Do not do that. Well, the Northern Kingdom does that. And of course, they lose. Assyria comes, completely destroys them, and they don't just lose like Judah lost. They are completely assimilated and they're lost. It's the lost 10 tribes. Okay, so pretty severe when you rely on the arm of flesh. So the, the lands wasted, the fields more, and the oil languished. And that leads us into 11. Be ashamed, O ye husbandmen. Howl, O ye vine dressers, for the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. What images does this bring to you? Is the ashamed husband when you got Matthew 21, 33 through 45 um, and Mark 12, 9, the husbandman gives the vineyard to uh, the husbandmen are wicked. And, and I, we're only slightly through this. So I'll stop going to all the scriptures. I'll just read them. But basically the husbandmen are wicked and they're punished. And so the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom is taken from the Jews and given to the Gentiles. And, and here you see the husbandmen are destroyed. They give it to new husbandmen to take care of the field. Uh, the chief priests who come to Jesus in Matthew are speaking and they perceive that he's talking to them. And they're, they're, the leaders are the corrupt ones. It's always the leaders that bring about this destruction because they reject Christ. Christ says they reject me in verses 15, 51. Um, of Matthew. So DNC 101, 55 through 56 also explains the Gentiles are us and we have the kingdom taken and given back as we discussed in 3 Nephi with the remnant who treadeth down and teareth apart. Um, so really, really clear, vivid um, pictures of not only what's going on right there with Joel, but then in the future. Verse 12, the vine is dried up. The fruit of those who come to, come to Christ uh, is gone. It's withered. Referencing Christ and those who partake of his fullness, it's explained in Lehi's dream, partaking of the tree of life. And its fullness is the joy. So with verse 12 here, we see the vine is dried up, the fig tree languished, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, the apple tree, even all the trees of the field are withered because joy is withered away from the sons of men. If there's no joy in the, um, amongst the sons of men, what does that mean? Well, the, to come into Christ's presence is a fullness of joy. To partake of that fruit in Lehi's dream is fullness of joy. Um, Christ is a whole reason why we're on this earth. He's a whole purpose. If there is no Christ, there is no joy. And that's what's happened among these people. These experiences aren't happening. They're not bearing the fruit. Baptism of fire, back in the Holy Coast, that comes by receiving the new covenant, which um, is only entered in by broken heart and contrite spirit. Verse 13, gird yourselves and lament, ye priest, how ye ministers of the altar. Come lie it all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of my God, for the meat offering, the drink offering is withholding from the house of God. Um, so once again, another direct connection to the fact that the ordinances mean nothing. The ordinances um, are empty. Okay, the people who are in charge that are supposed to be ministering these these things, um, the meat offering and the um, these ordinances, they're symbolic of the sacrament of Christ's body and His blood. It's being withheld. They're not receiving that redemption. They're receiving true ordinances. They're being cut off once again. Uh, verse 14, sanctify ye fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry unto the Lord. Uh, DNC 133, 62 through 63 talks about this. And I'm going to pull that one up just because um, this one is, is really good. Um, okay. So 62, 63. Oh, my stuff got away. 
and unto him that repenteth and sanctifieth himself before the Lord shall be given eternal life. So sanctify is coming up a lot here. So we're going to see what the definition based from God's mouth sanctify is. And upon them that hearken not to the voice of the Lord shall be, um, and upon them that hearken not to the voice of the Lord shall be fulfilled that which was spoken, written by Moses the prophet, that they should be cut off from among the people. So cut off again. So psalm assemblies were time for God's people to come together and unite to obey the voice of the Lord. Um, and they had a deep purpose that just as Joel's time was today, there was a there was a reason for the people to come together and mourn. First uh, Samuel 7 to 13 and Jonah 3 are examples of non-traditional assemblies. So now it's become a traditional thing. Oh, we do psalm assembly, you know, in the Jewish culture or even in the LDS culture, so called psalm assemblies. Um, following, but in those scriptures, you see the solemn assembly is called after falling away, um, after people have sinned and need to be repenting together as a whole, and they come together in unity to show the Lord, hey, we screwed up, we're sorry. Okay, and so let's go back to Joel here. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord. So here's, here's our next day of the Lord is at hand, and a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. This is the, the destruction that is discussed, um, once again, 45, verse 39, I won't go into those, and verse 6, uh, we'll go right into verse 16, and is not the meat cut off before your eyes, yea, joy and gladness in the house of God, this is just reminiscent to what we just talked about, Christ not coming to Christ, not having your ordinances, um, 17, the seed is rotten under the clods, and the gardeners are laid desolate, the barns are broken, for the corn is withered, so the seed is really important, because Christ plants the seed in your hearts, so for the seed to be rotten means it's not being fed, it's not being taken care of. And we learn in Alma that when they're teaching about the seed, if it's a good seed and it dies, what does that mean? That means that it's withered away because it was not able to be nourished and you weren't taking care of it. Uh, so not only is our food physically gone, but any future food is gone, nothing to plant, and spiritually there's, um, they're gone. And so 35 talks about that in 2015, 16, and 20. And, and hearkens that connects this particular one to the future event, which is in our name. Verse 17 or verse 18. How do the beasts groan? The herds of cattle are perplexed because they have no pasture. Yea, the flocks of sheep are made desolate. This is interesting because um, the cattle now are suffering, which is going to affect the people. So the cattle have no food. Uh, and the domino effect that we're going to see here is from the locust destroying everything. And then that destruction causes the animals to die and everything else. And, and that thing also, spiritually, God's people are not being fed by the shepherd. They want, and then they're gonna be starving. And they're gonna start, since they're starving, to start worshiping idols and other doctrines. 19 through 20, in this one, the, O Lord, to thee will I cry, for the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness and the flame hath burned all the trees in the field. This is um, Joel himself saying that he's going to, um, he's crying unto the Lord. The beasts of the field cry also unto thee, for the rivers, the waters are dried up, and the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness. And now we go into Joel 2. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in the holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the Lord, day of the Lord cometh in his night hand. So here's um, the next day of the Lord. And this is interesting because um, he's trying to get the people. This is a sound of alarm. Why would someone have to sound an alarm? If you know there's a fire and everybody knows there's a fire, everybody gets out. But if everybody's sleeping, you have to start yelling to everybody, get out, get out, get out, right? So their people are drunkards. They're not listening. 
they're, they're not capable of hearing or seeing that there's an emergency happening and they need to repent and come back to God. Uh, the day of darkness and gloominess, the day of clouds, the day of thick darkness in the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people, a great people and a strong. There hath never been, not been even the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. So finally, Joel really connects the locust to this future nation that's coming, which Isaiah constantly talks about this great tyrant that comes and takes over not just um, Babylon, which is likened to the United States, but all of the world and causes this great destruction. And it's saying um, the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and strong and hath never been the like. And this also happens to the Israelites as they are taken over in the future because they do not heed Joel when he's talking to them right here. Uh, three, a fire devoureth them, and, and behind them a flame burneth, and the land is as the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing shall escape them. So just like the locusts, nothing escaped, here the physical destruction is going to happen, no one escapes it. And then this, this, of course, goes forward to if you don't repent, the burning that comes in the last days. There's going to be burning either way. If you're righteous, there's a burning and it's a baptism of fire and a cleansing and you're able to abide the day. But if you're not righteous, there's a devouring fire that's going to burn you up and, and nothing will be left. The appearance of them, verse four, is as the appearance of horses and a horseman um, shall they run. Now, these next few verses, we're actually going to go through quite a few verses, um, just kind of put them together here because four through nine, he just is explaining the ability of. Uh, these people, this nation that comes. And there's a lot of other scriptures talk about it. You, Jeremiah, Hosea, they all talk about it. And Isaiah, of course, the most. So we won't really go to get into all this, but it's the, the ability, the way they move, almost like describing the locusts again, um, their access to things and, and how they conquer. And so we're just going to go down to verse 10. The earth shall quake before them, the heaven shall tremble, the sun, the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. This is back to Dancy in um, The to sanctify comes before the sun moon, just like in Joel, they're told to, to sanctify, and then they have 87 to 91 great destructions of men by nature happens in Nancy 34 claims also a great day, and then verse 9, you've got a sun darkened again. So the same words, the same things that the Lord said to Joel in this day, the Lord said to our prophet, Joseph Smith, and had put in these scriptures for us today. He's using the same words because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's using the same words um, so that we understand and we connect these things and we connect these ideas. Book of Mormon, 2nd Nephi 23, 1 through 19, quotes all of Isaiah 13 and specifically pieces of, again, the day of the Lord. And verse 10 of 2nd Nephi 23 says the stars um, and it follows this whole pattern. Verse 15, wars and destructions always come after that. That's what we see. We see the signs in the heavens and the wars and destructions after the people. So got another day of the Lord is pronounced here. And then we go into verse 11. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord, there it is, is great and very terrible. And before something happens that is significant, he always says the day of the Lord. So we're, we're in this part now where the people are not repentant and this extreme force has to come. Now, whoever is doing what the Lord wants, that's the Lord's. So this, while these people are wicked, they're doing the Lord's will by causing the destruction of these people, just like Isaiah teaches. So therefore, also now saith the Lord, turning even to me with all your heart and with fasting, with weeping and with mourning. So this is interesting. 
because this is where um, he's not only suggesting the people this whole time have not been focusing on God, which brings this destruction, um, but he's telling them what they need to do. But as though they don't know that they need to do this, which is kind of interesting, right? We would think that we would know to repent, but we're so prideful and stuck up that we can't figure that out. So that goes to 13. So this is the next part. This is part three, repentance. Rend your heart and not your garments. Now this goes to the traditions. They believed in this tradition of, you know, openly ripping your garments, rending your garments to show your upset or angry or whatever god's basically saying i'm so sick of your traditions i'm so sick of all the stuff that you do to be seen outwardly rend your heart turn unto the lord your god for he is gracious merciful slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil uh he he sees through their traditions and their false worship and wants them to truly come unto him joseph smith translation comes into play now joseph smith has tram has translated two verses out of the three chapters of Joel, which is pretty significant that joseph smith would spend time on 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 these so they must be pretty important god will turn away evil from you he says this is a regular plan you you repent god turns evil away from you it's the same thing our destruction will come but when our hearts are fully offered to god then he'll turn the anger away so uh who knoweth if he will return or repent he leaveth a blessing behind him even a meat offering and a drink offering unto your god and, and that's a promise that's, that's wonderful because he's going to leave a blessing after people are truly converted and come to God and have offered this true rending of our heart, ripping all the idols out, what happens? Then um, God can truly give them the ordinances that they desire, right? So Joseph Smith fixes that verse and he says that he may offer a true meat offering. I will pull up that scripture just because that one is significant too. See, actually, I can get it to pull up. All right. No, it's not. That one's not pulling up for me. So that's okay. It basically, you can look it up yourself. It's um, the verse, even a meat offering and drink offering unto the Lord your God, 14. Um, Joseph Smith corrects that in saying that he will offer that for us and we'll have access to it. In verse 15, blow the triumph trumpet in Zion, sanctify fast, call a solemn assembly. Now this brings back the assembly again. And this is where we see some chiasmus coming in. And we don't have time to go into chiasmus. It's just a whole other level. Um, but you'll see the chiasmic structure starting to come together now that we're coming back out of this process. So this, this short um, connection to the previous verses is showing that the people are starting to turn around. They're starting to come back. Um, and then 16, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, and those that suck the breast, let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. So this connects back. This is the chiasmic part. It's you had the virgin lamenting because her she was severed from Christ. And then after this great army comes, not only do they have pestilence and famine, that wasn't enough to get them to return. A great army has to come and decimate them. And then what do they do? Finally, a broken heart. They, they truly repent. They give their hearts over to God. And they, the people gathered, they sanctify the congregation, which we're going to, like I said, we'll come to sanctification, what that means. And then um, the bridegroom, Christ, comes out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet, which means that they're finally going to come together, which is so significant. That's what we want, right? We want to be 
um, Christ church. We want to be unified with him. Let the priests, the ministers, the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare the people, O Lord, give not thine heritage to report um, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, where is God? Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity for his people. So they become his now. So now the Lord, remember, he's constantly saying that he's going to do our work. He's going to do the, the work of the people. So here he's saying, okay, now I'm going to step forward because these are my people. I'm not going to let someone treat my people badly. The Lord will answer in verse 19 and say unto his people, behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil. And you should be satisfied with, and I will no more make you reproach among the heathen. Well, this corn and wine and oil is the chiasmic structure that connects us back again. And this is, we're in our fourth part, our redemption part here. Um, this is going to connect us back to Joel 1.10. So remember, resembles the ordinances that didn't have power. Well, now they have power. Just as Christ miraculously provides bread and wine for the people in 3rd Nephi and in the New Testament, here Joel explains that Christ will provide for them the necessities for his ordinances. So his power and, and the priesthood and everything that they need will be given back to them that they'll have access to it. They'll be one with him. And then the Lord does the incredible thing where he says, I will remove from afar off the Northern army. This Northern army is really neat. We don't have time to go into it. I wish I could. We will do a zoom in on it, but Northern army is significant that we get that key right there. And we'll drive him into the land barren and desolate and his face toward the East sea and his hinder part toward the uttermost sea. And because he hath done great things. So fear not a land, be glad and rejoice for the Lord will do great things. And I'll try to move this on. Um, be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the bear, the tree beareth her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield. And this chiasmus connects back again to previously when what happened with the beast, Joel 118, the fruit um, was barren, but now it flourishes temporally and spiritually. So the people were decimated. Now their fruit is coming forth spiritually and physically after they've been humbled. Now they're not as the fruit tree that offers no fruit, but they are worthy of being gathered up and placed in the garners for God. Uh, and verse 20 through 24 talks about the former rain, that God gives them the rain. He's going to give all the land everything back that it needs. Everything that was taken is given back. The floors should be full of wheat, the fats overflow, the wine and the oil. This is the Holy Spirit coming. I mean, it, symbol, symbolism um, back on everything we already went through. This is the, all of these connect chiasmus, through chiasmus back to um, Joel 1. And I will restore unto you the years the locust had eaten, the canker worm, the caterpillar, the palmer worm, my great army, which I sent among you. So everything that's happened is given back. They'll have plenty. Verse 26, 27 promises that he's going to be in the midst of Israel. And I have many, many, many more scriptures that connect to this that I'll post when we um, put this up. There's so much more reading you can do into these that connect with Doctrine and Covenants and the Book of Mormon. Um, but verse 28, and it shall come to pass afterward. This is significant. So after all of this, after the people have been abused and ashamed and this whole extreme thing has happened, after this, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh because they've been proven worthy. They've offered themselves up. Um, they've been totally broken. They've, they've, they've received um, God and gotten rid of all their idols. So then he pours out his spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. We know where we see that elsewhere in the scriptures. So that's a very powerful scripture, but we have a timeline on when that scripture truly comes. And we know that is Pentecost or sorry, that is end times. And it's almost like a Pentecost um, foreshadowing for an end times. So before when there was a Pentecost, then there was persecution. So now we're going to have a Pentecost where we get greater levels of the spirit because we're going to need it. We're going to need these witnesses. We're going to need um, to have experienced these things because 
that wasn't the only destruction that's coming. That was a destruction to refine us, to prepare us, because the next thing that happens is even more great. And that's what is talked about in the third chapter of Joel. So the rest of this talks, um, 30, um, I will shew wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood, fire, and pillars of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon into the blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And that's, um, this is going to be the, the fourth um, day of the Lord, or the, um, that's going to go into the extreme where Zion is going to, you're going to see Zion built. And this is where Zion comes in. And it came to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. So these people now are worthy to enter Zion. So that's where they're going to go. And now is the destruction of the world. And now is when um, people are preparing for Christ to come back. Okay. And that's where we are going to head into chapter three, which chapter three, we're not going to go through every verse because basically what chapter three is, um, is it's one through 21 parallels events in third Nephi before Christ come. Destruction is everywhere. Terrible, evil, horrific things are happening. Um, and even the end of the Book of Mormon, where we see people being com completely depraved, eating the flesh of others, they're um, killing innocents, um, just terrible, terrible things. And he doesn't say specifically all those things. He does talk about the abuse, but he's constantly saying, oh, how terrible these these things are that are happening that are going on but we know that by this point um the the zion or zion is set up for those to start coming people to start going unto those safe havens and those safe places because they've been through the turmoil that has led up to this and so um we'll just really really quickly verse nine is proclaim ye gentiles uh, prepare for war, wake up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. So great war specifically throughout, I mean, throughout the whole world, but um, the Gentile nations first. Um, reverse, this is a reverse Zion also going on in verse 10. So beat your plashers into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say I'm strong. That's what the world does. That's what the world does when they want to save themselves. Verse 13, reverse harvest. So you see a lot of reverses here. Reverse harvest of the good instead this is a harvest of the evil put ye in the sickle for the harvest is ripe come get you down for the press is full the fats are floor and their wickedness is great so satan gets to have his harvest too basically what we're seeing here those who aren't in zion and then 14 um the last day of the lord is here with signs in the heavens again this time the line that comes to tread down the wicked is christ he is the hope and the strength of the people so before it was this lion that's going to come um and cause these destructions on the gentiles that cause them to repent well the final line that comes roars out of zion and it is jesus christ uh, so that ye know that i am the lord your god dwelling in zion my holy mountain then shall jerusalem be holy and there shall be no strangers pass through her anymore and, and this is really significant because you get this hope and this understanding while these terrible things are happening and this is all end times here um, those who trusted in Christ and trusting God, uh, whether they give their lives for that trust or whether they're still here, there's a place for them. For I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed for the Lord dwelleth in Zion. And so that's the book of Joel. Now there's so many more um, connections that can be made, but some really significant things here. I'll close it out that I really loved. Um, you know, before I finish up, you've got those five parts that are, are discussed. And I'm just going to review those one more time, just because um, Joel breaks it down so well. And these, 
the structure is, I mean, basically what we all experience with Christ individually. And then it's what we experience as a nation. And this is what you experience in the creation as a whole. So there's a falling away. There's always a falling away. You see that in the Garden of Eden. Um, there's always this falling away that is a physical and temporal falling away. And then there's a great nation that takes some people into bondage at some point. The, the Lord stops dwelling with them. You see it in the Book of Mormon. You see it all through the New Testament. You see it through the New Testament. You see it everywhere. And then repent. Rend your heart. That happens. People repent. They come back. Then God fights your, your um, battles again. And the Lord removes those armies. And then God pours out his spirit and wonders in heaven. And it really is the day of the Lord. And so I love Joel because it connects all of these things that we see on such a short, short scale and such brevity that you can read it quickly, but you can still get so much out of it. And something that I, I really enjoyed while I was studying this that I came across that I wanted to share was, you know, um, Newton studied and received um, so much uh, acclaim for his science. And I mean, the laws of, of science that we use today that are, are so important and access almost every part, uh, calculus, how we look at the moon, understand the waves and gravity and just pretty much everything. He was able to calculate all of it. And so many of those works, you know, when, when Lord's disciples said, when will these things come? Christ said, well, they won't be made known until the time that they're um, going to start being fulfilled. And it's interesting because so many of Newton's works, everything that he's known for is actually not his life's work. His life's work spent over 50 years studying the Bible. He, he put all of his time, everything into it. And he had to keep it a secret. He even coded all of his stuff. And he, he was able to figure out so many incredible things to think, imagine the mind that God touched that was able to look out in the heavens and figure out mathematically how the ellipse of the rotations of the earth and the moons and this, I mean, everything, it was so incredible. That mind loved God so much that he gave his time and attention to studying the Bible. And he was received so much light and truth. And it was hidden from us for hundreds of years. And it wasn't until 2014 that his work has been coming forward. And we know what happened in 2014. Phil's taught, talked a lot about the, the signs in the heavens. But one thing Newton specifically said is the whole um, solar system, all the moons and stars were like a clock. And basically God wound it up. And there's certain things that go off like little alarms to tell you certain things are going on, but they have an end point. And if you study his work and you read his work, you get to learn more about that, which is really awesome. But all of these things bear witness. The fact that these scriptures are opening up, the fact that we're seeing the connections, all of these things are bearing witness that we are in the time that Christ spoke about when he talked to his disciples, that this is it. It's here. It's now. And this is the time for us to be asking the questions that need to be asked, to be studying the scriptures that maybe were more obscure to us when we were children, to be going to the Lord, giving up those idols seeking for that baptism fire baptism like go seeking to enter into that covenant because now's the time when we're preparing to have that spirit of the lord poured out over us because if we don't have that we will not be able to abide the day and i want to bear my testimony that i know these things are true i love my savior i love these scriptures and i'm i'm grateful for the opportunity to uh, discuss those things with you so i will go ahead and open it up now to any questions or thoughts or any of study that you guys have had that you would like to share, it is now your time. <laughs> 